Our scripture reading this morning is from Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. This can be found on page 974 in your pew Bible. Hear now the word of the Lord. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's, it's Mother's Day. And I think Mother's Day is one of those days that is just ripe for the possibility of expectations running headlong into reality. Um, whether, whether you're hoping for that picture-perfect uh, family moment, uh, maybe you worked hard on a, on a gift for mom, and, uh, and you, or, or mom, you want to capture that perfect family photo today, uh, that Pinterest moment that you've, you, you saw and you've tried to craft. Uh, it's just hard when sometimes those expectations, those hopes just don't meet reality. And as, as, as I've talked with parents and moms in our community, I get the sense and, and I, I know that it's hard to live with that pressure uh, sometimes of, of that perfect Facebook photo that, that matches that Pinterest ideal, that that is a real thing, the, perfe- the, 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 the striving for that perfection uh, of that moment. And, and it's true that so often our best efforts and our attempts fall short of that. So, for example, I saw some of these this week. This is a, a Pinterest photo that didn't go quite as they wanted. So this is what they were striving for at the top, the beautiful stack of children. Um, and then the, the reality there below. Um, I call this, this next one the pumpkin seat. So this, was, you know, this is what they were going for. Uh, this is what, you know, dad holding the baby actually turned out to be. And, you know, the Gorman family has these moments as well. So this is a, a picture that we posted on Facebook of our girls announcing that we were going to have a, a boy, a, a baby boy coming in September. Um, but it, it took a lot of photos to get to that one. So this is one of the earlier uh, ones in the sequence here. I've got another photo, I think. Uh, yeah, here you go. So this was, was earlier in the, the attempt to get that, that photo. Um, and then there was the family in Missouri uh, whose sort of picture-perfect family uh, photos went viral after their photographer. I don't know if you've seen this. So there was these awful, like, a shadows because of the bright sun, and the Photoshop person didn't know at all what they were doing and turned it into something kind of horrifying, actually. Uh, I, I sent this to one of our other pastors, like, oh, you should maybe use this on Sunday. And they're like, thanks, Bill. I'm not going to be able to sleep this week because those, those photos are, are awful, uh, terrifying. Um, so often we long for the, the picture-perfect family, don't we? The, the Pinterest dream where everything is perfect. But the reality is, is that family is hard. Uh, family is broken. Uh, when you look at your own family, whether that's, that's now or, or your family growing up, what do you see? It's a, it's a mixed bag. Family can be painful. It can be embarrassing. It can be infuriating. And yet, even as we lament what's broken about family, 
what it isn't that it should be, what we would have wanted it to be, regrets that we have, what we hoped that it could have been. You know, even as we lament those things, you know, there's a glimmer of hope. Because the fact that we can say, man, this is not how it's supposed to be, or I wish it would have been different, the fact that we say those things means that we have some inkling, no matter how small, but we have some inkling of what a family is supposed to be. Of what the goodness of this, this thing is, that it, that it could be. And we all long to belong somewhere. To know that we are loved, no, no matter whether or not we perform, whether or not we live up to expectations, um, we, we long to know that we are loved apart from our performance, that we are secure apart from anything that, that we do, our successes, our failures. And what we're going to see this morning as we look at these verses, these first six or seven verses from Galatians chapter four, is that we aren't just free, we are actually family. We aren't just free, we're family. God hasn't just freed us from some kind of punishment. He hasn't just freed us from, as Paul has been talking a lot in the book of Galatians, he hasn't just freed us from the law, but he's actually gone a step further. He's freed us and then he's also made us a part of his family. This is what God does in the gospel. He doesn't just set us free, he also makes us family. And when God does his family planning, when he is making his picture-perfect family, how does he do it? Well, he does it through adoption. And in this sense, the, the family of God is a very non-traditional family. Everyone in his family, every one of his people is adopted. And this morning, if you are plagued with feelings of saying, I'm not good enough, feelings of I'll never be enough, that no matter what I accomplish or how much I check off, there's always more to do. That there's always a gap between who I am and, and who I want to be. Yeah, so often I feel that even in the task of pastoring, of preaching, that just seems like you, you, you reach a certain uh, plateau of, of feeling like, yes, okay, I've been striving for this. And then it's like, but, but man, like, now I got to get better. Well, Christians believe that there's only one thing that can silence that voice, that can really give you rest from that voice of inner critique. And it's not sort of a, a, a program of self-acceptance or confidence building. It's not even just a declaration that you aren't guilty. That's a, that's a massive part of it. But, but it's even more than that. Christians believe the only thing that can silence that voice permanently that can give you rest from those feelings of inadequacy is the assurance not only that you aren't guilty, but that you belong. That you belong in the family, that God has adopted you, that he's brought you into his people. And so this morning we're going to see that we are slaves who are in need of adoption, that we are children who are in need of belonging, and that we're sons and daughters in need of an older brother. And the first thing we see in this passage, especially in the first three verses, is that Paul uses this metaphor of enslavement or slavery, which is one he's used many times in this letter to Galatians that we've been looking at together over the past several weeks. 
It's, it's a metaphor to talk about what it's like to live outside of the freedom and belonging that we have in adoption. I wonder if you've, you've felt that sort of sense of entrapment or slavery before in your life. So often the very things that we look to to give us rest, that we look to to give us comfort or satisfaction, actually end up tying us down. They actually end up putting us into bondage almost into a kind of slavery. The classic picture of this, right, of course, is, is addiction. That when you look to alcohol or prescription painkillers or pornography or, or even something like gaming or, or fitness to give you a sense of comfort when you're sad or release from stress or, or a break from the pain, that while at first maybe they seem like they work, in the end they end up enslaving you the, the very thing that you ended up looking to for freedom, for, for comfort, for rescue, actually becomes a thing that traps you, that robs you of freedom, that causes you more pain. You know, but it doesn't have to be just something uh, that's an addiction and sort of, you know, uh, when we think about it, kind of addiction in a formal sense. Paul actually uses this metaphor of enslavement to describe what it was like both for the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, who are living under either the Jewish law or, in the case of the non-Jews, the kind of the pagan religious systems of the first century. And even more specifically here, at this point in Paul's argument, he wants his readers to understand that, that what they want to do, what they're trying to do, is go back under that bondage, back under that enslavement that they've already been set free from. And Paul is making this analogy in those first verses saying that would be, as, trying to do that is as silly as, as a child who, who has, uh, was an heir of a great inheritance but, but couldn't receive it, couldn't actually make use of it until they turned 18 and were an adult. It would be as silly as that child when they turned 18 and now they finally have this inheritance that belongs to them saying, no, actually I'd rather give that up and go back to being under guardians and trustees. Paul's saying don't do that. You've been given this incredible freedom in Jesus. Don't go back to being a slave. Don't give up your inheritance that you've already received. So look at what Paul says in verses 1 through 3. He writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So, so do you see what I mean? Paul is pointing out that when these children were, were underage, even if they were an heir to a vast fortune, functionally they were no different than a servant in the household. They, they didn't have any access to that fortune. They were under the authority of these guardians, these trustees, not able to access those, those funds of that inheritance. And Paul is saying that what was happening is that in our lives or their lives, when we, when we try to go back to earning God's favor through our performance or through what we accomplish, that we're actually going, we're going backwards. We're trying to put ourselves back under these guardians and trustees when, when no, you've already been set free from that. You've already have the inheritance. You don't have to continue. You don't have to perform in order to get it. We all, at one level or another, we, we look to our performance we, we look to our accomplishments, our pedigree, where we went to school, where we work, our career, in order to give us a sense of, of belonging, of hope. 
And this, this little phrase that Paul uses here, this language of elementary principles, that language, it points to both to the idea of the, of the Jewish law as well as to the pagan religious systems in the first century of the Greco-Roman Empire. And while most of us here this morning, I don't think, uh, are trying to live according to a strict following of the Jewish law, and, and on the other hand, I don't think many of us here this morning are probably trying to follow a particular uh, Greek or Roman pagan religious cult. We're not going to a, a temple and offering a sacrifice and bowing down to a statue. We still have religious elementary principles that entrap us. Again, it, it's not probably the Jewish law. It's not going to a temple to, to sacrifice to a statue. But think about the indebtedness that so many of us have in our culture. The indebtedness due to consumerism. And consumerism is the religion of newer, nicer, bigger, and better. And it's a religion that is pervasive in our city and in our neighborhoods. The, the religion of consumerism declares that the way to salvation, the way to have hope is to have a car, a home, a watch, a computer, a purse, a phone, a TV, a kitchen, a refrigerator, a vacation, a cooler, or whatever, you fill in the blank, that's better than the one I already have. That, that, that is consumerism. Not that I need all these things, I just need one that's a little bit better than the one that I already have. Not a lot better, just, just a little better than the one I already have. And as a result of that, how many of us, how many of us here this morning, how many people here this morning in our, in our neighborhoods, in our city, are trapped overwhelmed by, by credit cards or car loans or mortgages that, that you can't afford or you can just barely afford. Consumerism enslaves us through debt and, it, and it's never enough. Or, or think about individualism, kind of this, this religion of self-reliance that forces us into to loneliness and to a sort of a crippling hyper-independence that, that undermines our created design for interdependence as a community. We try to hide our weaknesses. We don't let anyone ever see any, any imperfections or any needs. We try to do it all on our own. And then we actually end up alone. And Paul's point is that we're all enslaved to something. And that Jesus has come to rescue us from that enslavement. And the way that he rescues us from that enslavement is to adopt us into his family. Look at verses 4 and 5 where Paul continues. He says, but when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And specifically in verse 5 there, Paul says that Christ redeemed us so that. Whenever you're reading your Bible and you see the word therefore or so that, no, pay really close attention to what comes before and after that. The author's making a point. Paul's saying the purpose that we were redeemed, the purpose of Jesus coming, being born under the law, being born as a human being, was to redeem us so that we could become children of God, that we could be adopted. That's the point of all of this. That's the reason, the purpose for it. To be adopted, not just to be set free, not just to be declared innocent, but to be adopted. Think about it like this. It, it's one thing for an orphan 
And it's just, you've probably seen this in a movie or read it in a novel, right? The, the scene of the, the orphan who, who steals something from the merchant in the market. They steal a loaf of bread or an apple, right? It's one thing in a story like that for, for the merchant to forgive the orphan and say, you know, it, it's okay. I, I'm gonna, not going to treat you as guilty. I'll forgive you from stealing from me. and I'm going to give you a second chance. It's a whole nother thing for that merchant then to say, but now I'm also going to adopt you as my child and raise you as my own. But that, friends, that is what God has done for us in the gospel. Not only has he declared us innocent, has he forgiven us all of our sins, as he said, you are no longer guilty. You are set free. He's also then adopted us into his family as his sons and daughters welcomed us into this place of belonging. We're not just declared in us. We are more than that. We are adopted. That's why theologian J.I. Packer points out that justification, which is that's the, the, the kind of the Bible word for God declaring us innocent, for him acquitting us in the criminal court. Why he says that's the greatest blessing of the gospel. But actually the highest privilege of the gospel It's adoption, being called sons, daughters, children of God. God is not simply pronouncing us a verdict of acquittal in a criminal court. He is also declaring us adopted in family court. Now the language of sons here is significant. Because Paul is saying something radical and progressive, incredibly progressive, when he uses the language of sons in this text. And, and you might be saying, wait, Bill, how can that be progressive? Paul doesn't even include women there. In fact, as Paul Brandis was reading this earlier, that was one of the parts that kind of like got me hung up a little bit. Is just, just sons. Is he just talking about men? Is this kind of a backwards text? But that's just it. When Paul uses this language of sons, he's actually referring both to men and women, to all Christians. And that was incredibly radical at this moment. But we we miss it if we don't understand the cultural background and context. Because Paul is saying something in this moment that no other religion in the world had ever said, that no other culture ever had ever said, and that is that in Christianity, both men and women receive the same inheritance, the same status, the highest status one could have in the ancient world, that of being the chosen son. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo explains, he says, believers, whether male or female, attain the status reserved in the ancient world for one specifically chosen son. So so do you get what this means? The incredible power of what Paul was saying in in the first century in a Roman empire where daughters could never inherit because for so long and in so many cultures, even today, and you even get hints of it still in our culture today, that it was sons. It's sons, especially the firstborn sons who received the most praise and adoration, the most privilege and status. And so often in the ancient world and and even in some cultures today, daughters were considered many times an afterthought at best or at worst considered worthy of of abandonment or being cast out. But Paul declares here in this moment, the first century and today, that God has never been ashamed. He has never been ashamed to have a daughter. And 
They're on equal status, the highest possible status in his family. As God's adopted children, his sons and daughters, we are all adopted into the highest possible position in the family with the greatest access to the inheritance. So no matter your maleness or your femaleness, no matter your birth order, whether you're firstborn or secondborn or thirdborn or fifthborn, no matter your achievement, no matter your performance, if you are a Christian, God has adopted you into his family and he's put you into the very highest possible category. And he is never ashamed of you. He's never disappointed in you. Paul's caution here is that so often, though, we continue to live like slaves even after we have been adopted as children. Which brings us to our next point, that we are not only slaves in need of adoption, who indeed God has adopted us as extends the offer of being a part of his family, but that we are also children who are in need of belonging. What the Galatians were doing is they were forgetting that they had been adopted. They were forgetting that they were already sons and daughters, that they were attempting to return to this old way of of needing to perform, of needing to achieve in order to be secure in their belonging in the family. And Paul is saying, don't do that. You are sons and daughters of the king of all creation already. And that status as a son or a daughter is not based on your achievement. It's not based on what you accomplish. It's not not based on, on any of that. It's based on God's choosing of you. He's adopting you into his family. So don't go back to, to living like a, a child who's underage, who's trying to earn an inheritance or who isn't old enough to have it. You've been given this already. And yet so often that's exactly what we do. When we hear that voice inside of us saying, you're, you're not good enough, I'll never be enough, no matter what I accomplish or check off, there's always more to do, there's always a gap between who I am and who I want to be. Uh, we, we can begin to listen to those voices more loudly than the voice that says, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, whom I am well pleased. And when we do that, we start living like slaves again. Not like children who belong in the family. Because we are children, God has given us the incredible gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit inside of us, assuring us that we belong in the family. It's one of those great mysteries of God in how he actually sends his spirit to live within us, to make us alive spiritually. He's given us this gift, and and in verse 4, Paul explains that God sent his son to us. And then in verse 6, he says that God, our Father, has also sent the Spirit the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts so that we could know Him and call out to Him as our Father. Listen to verses 6 and 7 again. And Paul continues. He says, And because you are sons, because you've been adopted to this highest possible status, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child, a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is what God has done for us. And Paul explains that that because we are children of that highest possible category, the status of, of the chosen son, God has actually given us his spirit, the spirit living in our hearts. 
when Paul uses that language of heart, he doesn't just mean the place of our emotions, or our feelings. It, it includes that, but the, in the biblical category of heart includes our mind, it includes our will, it's where we make our decisions and our commitments. The biblical language of heart encompasses all of that. That's where the Spirit comes. And what does the Spirit do? when he comes into our hearts. I think this is so fascinating. First, Paul writes that the Spirit, when he comes into our hearts, allows us to cry, Abba, Father. And Abba, it's not the band, Abba. He's not crying out for, um, but, but Abba is an Aramaic word for, for Father. And our English Bibles actually leave that Aramaic word untranslated. They leave it Abba, but then they, they, the next word that comes in the text is the Greek word for Father, which they translate in English. This is what's so fascinating to me, is that the Spirit is multilingual. The Spirit is multilingual. We saw this back in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit descends on the very first followers of Jesus, the very beginning of the Jesus movement, and they are able to proclaim in all these different languages the good news about Jesus coming right from the beginning so that no one language has, has a pride of place or a special position in Christianity. The Spirit communicates us to us both the reality that is, that is too deep for words and also by empowering us to cry out what we could never cry out on our own, which is cry out to God as Father. And when Paul points out the conclusion of this, he reminds us that we are no longer slaves, but we are children and we are heirs of a great inheritance. And yet so often, we don't really feel I think like we are sons and daughters. We still act as though we are slaves. We, we are afraid of God. We're angry with Him. We don't see Him as a loving Father. If you want to live the Christian life, you have to start with an understanding that you are a child of God. It's the most important category for understanding what it means to be a Christian. The whole Christian life from beginning to end is rooted in understanding that I'm not a slave. I'm not a servant. I am a child of God. Listen to what uh, J.I. Packer writes. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Do you see yourself, Christian? Do you see yourself as a child of God? You see, there's all kinds of things, though, in our lives and our reality that, that fight against us understanding ourselves as God's children. Uh, first, Christians believe that there is, or there is a supernatural realm and that there are supernatural forces both of good and evil at work in the world. And the Bible names the, the head of the evil supernatural forces at work in the world Satan. Literally that word means accuser, the accuser. Do you question that you are a child of God? Perhaps the enemy, the accuser, is accusing you. It's almost as if someone, a bully, came up to an adopted child in the playground and began to mock them, saying, You're, that's not your real parents. That's not your real mom and dad. The enemy, the accuser, will say that to us. That you, you don't really belong in that family. 
you're not worthy of being a part of God's family. And in that moment, in that very moment, whether you feel it or not, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who's been sent into your heart, the one who enables you to cry, Abba, Father, is bearing witness against the accuser that you are indeed an adopted child. And he silences that accusation. You see, in the Roman world, when someone was adopted, and oftentimes it was done in adulthood, that, that someone, maybe they don't have the children of their own, they're adopting one of their, their servants or someone in their household to become the heir of the family inheritance. When that happened in a Roman court, there were always witnesses who were there to observe the ceremony of adoption. So that someday when the person died and, and the resources, the inheritance was to go to this adopted heir, that no one could come and say, no, 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 they're, they're not really his child. They're not really her child. Because witnesses could be called to say, no, I was there. I was there in the moment when they were adopted and made an heir of this family. And the Spirit is always bearing witness to the fact that you as a Christian, have been adopted. I think another big reason that sometimes we don't believe that we are children, that we act like slaves, is that we don't believe that God actually loves us. That we don't feel that our Father is pleased with us. That we don't really believe that God is good. That His plan for us is really best. And you see, there are actually two kinds of slavery that, that come out of that. They, they look really different in practice, but they both emerge from a belief that God isn't really good. The, the first kind of slavery is a kind of slavery that says, you know, I don't really believe that God is good. If he was really good, he wouldn't give me all these rules, but he has given these rules, and, and I'm afraid of him, so I better keep them all. Otherwise, he'll reject me, he'll hate me. The only way for God to love me is if I try to keep all the rules he's given me. I don't believe he's really good, but, but I better try to keep all the rules. That's one kind. Another kind of slavery actually looks really different, but it comes from the same place, and that is, God isn't really good, um, and so if he isn't really good, I don't have to obey these rules at all. <laughs> that, that he wouldn't, if he was really good, he wouldn't even make rules. So I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm not going to try to keep any rules. If someone says, well, God says this, or God says, I'm not going to do that. God wouldn't, God wouldn't ask me to do that if he was really good. So one life looks like this very constrained, fearful, legalistic kind of life. The other one looks like this, this kind of free, I just won't do anything to, to follow God at all kind of life. But they both emerge from the same place, which is a belief that God isn't really good, that he doesn't really love me, that his plan for, for life isn't really best. But if we believe that we have a good father who has adopted us, who has brought us into his family, who is infinitely pleased and delighted in us and his children, then we no longer see following his plan as a burden. And actually, duty is transformed into delight. That we, we no longer sort of obey and follow God's plan because we have to, otherwise he's going to get us, but because we want, we want to do what's best. We want to live into his design. So if you find yourself doubting whether you're a child, find yourself wavering in your assurance that you belong in God's family, ask yourself, do I really believe that God loves me? Am I, am I living according to his design for life? Do I believe that he's designed that to, for my good? 
for my flourishing. As a father of a, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, I'm often, uh, I'm often so convicted in my interactions with them about how God must think of me. Because, you know, as a, as a child, these little children, it's like I know, what's, I know how to keep them safe. I know what food is good for them to eat. I know when it's good for them to go to bed. And, and it, you know, it just breaks my heart when they, when they won't do those things or when they're pushing back or they're, they're angry about those things. It's like, no, don't you know I love you? I'm doing these things because this is going to keep you safe. This is what's going to help you to, to flourish. It's what's going to help you to live well and become the kind of person that, that you want to be. And in those moments, I think, gosh, this is how God must feel about me all the time. That Bill, don't you know I love you? Don't you believe that I, I understand how life works best? That, that I've given you this design so that, so that you can live into it and experience what the very things that you long for. We are children adopted by the King. We don't have to do or prove anything to be assured of his love. Why? Because we are sons and daughters in need of an older brother, and we have one. See, one of the most stunning claims in all the Bible is that Christians adopted by the Father have Jesus as their older brother who loves them and gave himself for them. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Jesus, the God of the universe, is not ashamed to call you a brother or a sister. The Bible says that Jesus is our brother because we've been adopted into this family. But not only is our brother, he was willing to be cast out of the family so that we could be adopted. He was willing to give up his status as the one true son of God so that we could be adopted as sons and daughters. And because of that, there is nothing that you can do to lose God's love for you. The songwriter Sarah Groves is a wonderful uh, writer, and she has this amazing song called You Cannot Lose My Love. And it's written from the perspective of a parent to a child, the perspective of God for his children, the perspective of our older brother Jesus to us, his little brothers and sisters. My wife, Rachel, often sings these words over our daughters. It goes like this, You will lose your baby teeth. At times you'll lose your faith in me. You will lose a lot of things, but you cannot lose my love. You may lose your appetite, your guiding sense of wrong and right. You may lose your will to fight, but you cannot lose my love. You will lose your confidence in times of trial, your common sense. You may lose your innocence, but you cannot lose my love. Many things can be misplaced. Your very memories erased. No matter what the time or space, you cannot lose my love. Dear sisters, dear brothers in Christ, hear these words of your older brothers singing over you right now. The words of your Father delighting in you. You cannot lose His love. And no other ritual or practice solidifies what it means to be a family more than gathering around the dinner table together. Which is why Jesus has given us a meal. The, the meal of the Lord's Supper communion as our family dinner table. 
what Christians for ages have called the Lord's Supper, where brothers and sisters gather to celebrate their older brother's sacrifice and promise the assurance that we cannot lose his love. That as we take the elements of communion, the bread and the juice, and we consume them, may you hear God speaking over you. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. I am pleased with you. I've loved you. I've adopted you. You cannot lose my love. And we celebrate this, this meal, this family gathering around the table each and every week here at the Brookside campus. And let me just give you a couple instructions on how we do that. We have four communion stations around the room, two here on the front on either side, and then two in the back on either side. And the station on the back on this side of the room has gluten-free communion elements available uh, in it if you need those. Um, So just when you are ready, uh, exit out kind of the sides of your aisles uh, and then kind of come back through the center of those aisles. That's just how the flow tends to work best. Um, Gather around the server with uh, maybe six or eight folks and then take the, the bread and dip it into the cup and then when everyone in your group's done that, partake together in that moment. You don't have to be uh, a member of our church in a formal way to celebrate with us if you are someone who is trusted in Jesus, who says he is my only hope. He's my older brother. He is the one who has adopted me as his child. Then I pray uh, that you would come and be a part of this moment with us. If you're here this morning and you say, you know, I'm, I'm just here visiting uh, for child dedication and I don't really do the whole church thing. I'm not really familiar with this. I don't know if I believe this yet. Um, That's great. We're so glad that you're here. Wouldn't want you to feel any pressure to do something, one, you don't understand, or you're saying, I don't know if I even believe this. Um, You don't have to come forward. In fact, wouldn't want you to come and say something of yourself that you don't believe is true. We wouldn't want to put you in that place. And so feel free to come, just pass through without receiving, or you can just even remain in your seat. No one will think that's odd or weird. Um, We're just so glad you're here with us this morning. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus invites us to do this in remembrance of him. So in a moment, the communion servers will come forward and then come to taste, to touch the good news that you've been adopted, that you are a child of God. Can servers come forward?